morning's scripture reading comes from James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. You can find it in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you on page 1011. Again, we're in James chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read. And now we ask, as the word is to be preached, for you to help us by, your power, by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to not only understand, but to feel and to respond rightly to your word. All for your glory, all for your name, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, last week, church, we kicked off our chosen project. We are partnering with the humanitarian aid organization known as World Vision to promote child sponsorship. What we want to do is to give all of you an opportunity to pair with a child across the globe, a child that you can bless with both financial support and relational connection. Now, we're going to be serving the Hmong people of Northwest Vietnam. As I explained last week, they are an ethnic minority group that's located in an impoverished, mountainous region of Vietnam. And last week we explained how World Vision has, has taken this, this long-standing ministry of child sponsorship, and in the last few years they have turned it entirely upon its head. They recognize that these children live such disenfranchised lives where they, they, they lack power, they lack privilege, They're simply not accustomed to making choices for themselves. These kids live their lives where all the decisions are always being made for them. So World Vision had this brilliant idea. What if, what if instead of sponsors always having the power to choose the child, what if we gave up our rights to choose and we put that power in the hands of a child? What if the child chose the sponsor? How, how would that change the dynamic of, of this relationship? What would it actually do for the child to put that choice in his or her hand? Well, on, on one level, it would go a long way in restoring dignity to that child, giving, giving them this power to choose. I, I know it may seem like just a small thing to us. I mean, we, we face so many bigger decisions in our lives, but to a child in that context, That simple choice can be a life-changing choice, empowering them, restoring to them their inherent dignity. But last week, we also talked about how this new approach to child sponsorship affords us a new opportunity to demonstrate the gracious, sovereign love of God. We looked at Ephesians 1, and we we saw how it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Even before we existed, he chose us. 
which of course was meant to stress the grace that he showed in that act of choosing. He didn't choose to enter into a relationship with us because we deserve it, because we're worth it. No, he didn't focus on that. No, he chose us without any consideration of any quality in us. If you are a Christian, the reason why you are in a relationship with God is because because he made a choice, a choice before the world began to love you. He loves you because he loves you. That's what we emphasized last week. And now, as a chosen child of God, friends, you have a chance to choose to love a sponsor child without consideration of any quality in that child. You're going to enter in this relationship not because you saw a photo of them and they just look so cute, or it's not because she reminds you of your niece or of some other special child in your life. It's obviously not for those reasons because you're not even the one picking the child in this situation. The child is going to be picking you. But, of course, that doesn't mean that you don't have any choices to make. You have a huge choice to make. You can still choose to get into this relationship in the first place, to begin a sponsoring relationship. But do you see, do you see now with this approach, your choice to enter into a sponsoring relationship can be based solely on grace. On, on the, you, can, you can exercise love just like the gracious, sovereign love of God. And that, I think, is what's so fascinating about us being the ones chosen by a child. So that's why uh, the, the, the pastors, we were just so excited about this opportunity to partner with World Vision and to share it with you this season. Now what I want to do today is to continue uh, to emphasize our project because there's still time. Uh, we started uh, last week, but there still is time for you to make a choice to get involved. So I want to talk about how, compassion, how ministries of compassion, just like child sponsorship, I want to talk about how they're really natural extensions of true religion. You see, these types of ministries, the reason why we're promoting it is because they can be, and really they should be found wherever you find a congregation of religious people. They should be doing things like child sponsorship. Now, I know um, a lot of people don't like it when Christianity is described as a religion or when we're described as religious people, they're going to say, you know, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And, you know, I, I, I get it. I understand why they want to make that difference, uh, that distinction. Because religion, the, the word itself, sounds very stiff, very stodgy. And what they're trying to do is to distinguish a real superficial, lifeless approach to faith where you're just going through the motions of religion. And they want to set that apart and distinguish it from a real faith that brings you into real relationship with God and, and, and real people and meeting real needs around the world. But I think we have to be careful that we, we, we don't treat religion, the word religion, as, as this byword or as something pejorative, as, as something negative. Because, as we're going to see, Christianity is actually described as a religion in the Bible, in our text this morning. So when, when James speaks of religion, when he speaks of pure religion, 
He doesn't have in mind a superficial conformity to just a bunch of ritualistic practices. No, what he has in mind when you read in the text pure religion, he has in mind a renovation of the heart that then manifests itself outwardly to involve ritualistic practices and traditions, but it starts from the inside, from the heart. So just as a good tree naturally produces good fruit, pure religion, pure true religion, supernaturally produces good fruit in your life. And James has three fruits in mind for us to consider. It's not an exhaustive list here, so be careful to, 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 to not assume that he's saying that this is all that true religion is going to produce in you. No, he, he's, he's saying that any religion that fails to produce at least these three fruits, well, that's a, that's a religion to, that, that's, that's highly suspect, that we should be really concerned about. So in this message, what I want to first do is to think about what a truly religious person looks like, according to James. Let's consider what pure religion produces in you individually. That's the first part of our message. And then the second part, I want to consider what pure religion looks like now among us corporately as a church. And of course, we're going to try to put some greater emphasis on the fruit of pure religion that relates to this particular chosen project that we're doing. And I, I, again, just like last week, I want to try to end our service a little earlier than usual, uh, but I want you guys to stay because we have uh, some more uh, testimonials to share with you about child sponsorship. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. Uh, let's go into this. So first, let's consider what pure religion produces in you individually. So that means if you're a true Christian, if you've been genuinely converted by God, if you're a good tree, then what good fruit are you inevitably going to produce? Well, James identifies three in particular. First, control over the tongue. Second, a concern for holiness. And third, a care for the helpless. So let me just read verses 26 to 27 again. Uh, it's, a, it's a short passage. I'll, I'll read it again. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so the first fruit that James mentions is control over your tongue. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, he should be able to bridle his tongue, to keep a tight rein on it. The image, of course, is uh, of this bridle that, uh, that you would use on a horse. So it's this metaphor for control, because you would, you would use that bridle to control the horse. So wherever you turn the bridle, you would expect the rest of the horse to follow. So James's point is that if, if your religion is the real thing, then your faith is going to manifest itself in the exercise of self-control over your speech. So if you can't control your speech, if you can't show any restraint, then you're probably deceiving yourself to think that you have true religion. And whatever you do have, James says, is worthless. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, does not control his speech, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 26. And friends, the worst kind of self-deception, uh, the worst kind of deception is self-deception. 
I mean, of course, it hurts to have a friend deceive you. It's so painful to have a spouse or a child lie to you. But at least in those situations, you have a chance to confront the deception and to get to the truth. But if you end up deceiving yourself, and if you're successful in convincing all the people around you, then you're really in trouble because you can't confront the deception that you don't know about. So you just might get stuck in a self-constructed web of lies. But that's why, that's why a verse like James chapter 1, verse 26 is so helpful for us because it can help cut through the web of self-deception. It offers us a real test that we can apply as we self-examine our own hearts. Now, I think what it's going to help to, to clarify here is to, to understand what kind of speech is James expecting us to restrain. Well, he elaborates for us in the rest of the book. So if you look in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, there in that section, he's talking about taming the tongue. And he has in mind at least false teaching in verse 1 and cursing later in chapter 3, verse 9. So at least to restrain ourselves from false teaching and from cursing. And by cursing, he's not talking about like saying cuss words per se. He's really talking there about sinfully wishing harm or evil upon someone out of spite, out of revenge. Wishing God to damn that person or at least to make his life a living hell. That, that's what, what he means by, by cursing someone. So it's coming out of a place of, of, of sinful uh, spite or anger or revenge. Now, later on in chapter 4, he continues to go back to the tongue. He goes back in chapter 4, verse 11, James says not to speak evil against one another. That, in that case, he's saying don't slander other people. Hold back your tongue. A bridled and tamed tongue is able to restrain itself from spewing forth hurtful words or corrupting talk or filthy speech. You're able to hold that back. I think we often assume that the true test of faith is your ability to speak. That's what we think is that if you have real faith, that means you know how to speak. You know how to preach a sermon. You know how to teach the Bible. You know how to give the right answers. You know how to explain the gospel. But here, friends, do you notice it says that the true test of faith is not your ability to speak, but your ability to not speak, to hold back, to restrain yourself, to rein in your tongue from speech that's intended to cut someone down rather than to build them up. A faith that can do that, that can control the speech, well, that is a faith worth having. That is a worthy faith. So that's the first fruit mentioned for us in our text. The second one is found in verse 27, and it's a concern for holiness. Let me read that again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We're going to skip that for now and consider that as our third fruit. And here it is, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the second fruit of pure and undefiled religion is the desire and the ability to keep yourself unstained from the world. You avoid worldliness because you're so concerned for holiness. This is, of course, about your inner life. This is about your heart. And the heart matters so much because even as Jesus himself said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
out of what's in your heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're so concerned with your tongue, with your speech, with bridling your tongue, then Jesus says, man, you should be even more concerned with your heart and what your heart is being exposed to. James goes on to warn in chapter 4, verse 4, that, quote, friendship with the world is enmity with God, hostility with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an f- enemy of God. That's James 4.4. And there, when he says the world, he's referring to all the forces in this fallen world that stand in opposition to God. So you see, pure religion is not just about what you say. It's not just about what you do. But it's fundamentally about who you are on the inside which is why we are exhorted throughout Scripture, not just in James, but throughout the Bible, to be vigilant and to be so watchful of what is influencing and shaping our inner life, our hearts. And James here is warning us of the various corrupting influences that are found throughout the world. If we're not careful, friends, the things of this world will pollute and contaminate our hearts. If you consume social media all day long, you are likely going to fill your heart with greater anxiety and with self-image issues. If you, if you saturate yourself in today's political discourse, well, your heart will likely be filled with anger or despair. If you continue imbibing depraved entertainment or exposing yourself to pornography or or any sexually immoral content, your heart will be polluted and stained. So don't be naive to think that that, that this won't affect me, this won't shape me or influence me. No, just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what Jesus taught us. So I hope it's, it's obvious just how important it is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. I mean, just think about it this way. I know many of you are doctors. The rest of us have watched The Doctor on TV. Uh, so, you know, we, we think we're experts as well. And, and so, you know, we, we've seen surgeons diligently scrubbing their hands clean before they enter into the OR, right? I mean, they're going like all the way up to the elbows, right? And they're just like, you know, so, so careful to make sure that their hands are, are clean because they wouldn't dare to operate with dirty hands. There's just way too much on the line. So why would a Christian dare, the, dare to serve the Lord with a dirty heart? especially knowing that when we are serving each other, when we are discipling each other, we're dealing with so much on the line. We are dealing with human souls, not just the human body, but the soul. So we must not be indifferent to the state of our hearts as we are engaging one another in ministry and service. Now, friends, I know that that sounds so devastating. It's devastating to think about what our hearts are actually being exposed to all all the time. Which is why, friends, we should be just that much more thankful for the gospel. 
Thank God for the cleansing blood of Christ. It is so hard to keep our hearts unstained from the world. If it were not for the forgiveness that freely flows from the cross of Christ, we would be hopeless. We would be helpless. We would be awash in our sin. So just take heart in knowing that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then by the grace of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit, you will, first of all, be cleansed of your sins and you will develop a growing concern for holiness and a, growing, a greater love for holiness than for the world. That is inevitable if you have pure religion. That will be produced in you. Now let's consider, of course, the third fruit. The third fruit is a care for the helpless, a compassionate desire to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, now the reason why James specifies orphans and widows is because in his day, orphans and widows were the epitome of the helpless. There was no better example than the orphan or the widow. They lived in such affliction because in those days there was, there was no independent career opportunities for women. There were no orphanages or state agencies uh, out there available to help the, the fatherless. Now, if you were a woman or a child in James's day who had lost her husband or had lost their father, you didn't just lose a loved one. You lost your sole source of economic provision. You would now have no means of procuring for yourself the most basic of needs. Your only hope is for extended family to take you in. Or, or the family of God, or the church. The first century church provided a social safety net to catch all of those falling through the cracks. Those whom society would typically treat as burdens and liabilities, the early church treated as blessings, as image bearers of God to be given dignity and support. These early Christians they stood out compared to their contemporaries. But they stood in unity with the Old Testament people of God. They stood within a long line of tradition of showing compassion to the helpless. What they were doing in the early church was being done among the people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, the Lord commanded Israel saying, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And that was so important to the Lord because, as he says in Psalm 68, verse 5, he describes himself as, quote, a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. That's who God is. Father to the fatherless, protector of widows. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 to 17, the Lord is, tells his people there that he's no longer going to accept their worship. He will not accept their worship until they, quote, Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So the right worship of the Lord is intimately tied up and connected with the right attitude and the right actions directed towards the most helpless in our world. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17 famously goes on to say that faith without good works is really no faith at all. It's, it's a dead faith. Chapter 2, verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So church, one of the clearest tests of pure religion is the degree to which we care for the helpless in our world. And that means going beyond just thoughts and prayers to actually extending tangible aid, whether it be our money or our time or our energy or our our actual presence. So friends, I ask you, is there some pattern, is there some practice in your life that reflects a heart for the helpless? It, It could be for widows and orphans, like in our text. It could be for the refugee family trying to adjust to a new life here in our city. It could be for the elderly woman isolated in a care home. It could be for that desperate mother facing an unplanned pregnancy or for the unborn child defenseless in the womb. Or it could be for that homeless beggar on the side of the street holding a sign. Or it could be, of course, for the impoverished child living in a third world village. Who we're helping, well, that could vary among us. I'm not saying that, that it, is, it is God's will that you have to get involved in child sponsorship. I hope you do. But what I think the Bible is saying is that there must be some exercise of this kind of religion in our lives. So even though what we do might differ, what should be common among us for those who have pure religion is a common care for the helpless, a care that goes beyond just words to manifesting itself in right actions, to manifest itself in good works. Otherwise, that faith we claim to have may very well be a dead faith that cannot save us. The gospel is clear that no one is saved by good works. Okay, so let's, let's just emphasize that again. No one is saved by good works, but the Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, but of course that faith is never alone. Saving faith will always be accompanied by those good works. So pure religion is inevitably going to produce good fruit in our lives, and one of those fruits is this care for the helpless. All right, so now let's Let's consider, as we've just been focusing on what it does in us individually, now let's, let's focus on what pure religion looks like among us corporately. A fruitful tree by itself is a beautiful sight, but what would a fruitful orchard look like? What, what, would, it be, what would that orchard be characterized by? So let's, let's go back to these three fruits, and let's consider each of them, what they're going to look like when they ripen and they blossom among us together as a body of believers. So these, these uh, applications are going to be more focused on what it looks like happening between us corporately. So first, you're going to see a community characterized by constructive speech. Constructive speech, where believers are known for edifying each other with our speech. You know, that word edify, 
It originally uh, refers to the construction of a building. That's why uh, when you use the word an edifice, an edifice you know, refers to a very large building. So edifying speech is speech that seeks not to tear people down, but to build them up, to encourage them, to strengthen them. That's what it means to edify someone. But, of course, let's be careful. It is good to want to always be constructive and not destructive, but at the same time, if you struggle with the desire to please people, then you'll likely be hesitant to speak hard truths to a person that a person might not want to hear, but they need to hear for their own good. And so in other words, if, if you tend to wrestle with people-pleasing, then you'll definitely encourage people, but you probably won't correct them. And I'm sure, though, you've heard of something called constructive criticism. So what I'm trying to say here is that to edify someone, edifying speech is broader than just, just saying words of encouragement. It would also include words of correction that are aimed at helping people to either repent of their sins before God or to repair their relationships with others. So what that means is that that bridle, that pure religion puts over your tongue, that bridle is often meant, of course, to turn you away from saying things that you shouldn't say, that your flesh wants to say. We've already focused on that. But, you know, there are times when that bridle is actually meant to turn you towards saying something that you know you should say, but that, you don't, that your flesh doesn't want to say because you fear the opinion of man. And so that bridle is meant to sometimes lead you to say what you need to say. Now, friends, you guys know yourselves best. So you know what comes natural to you. You know if, if, if encouragement uh, comes natural to you. And, and, and that's where, where, where you instinctively go. Now, if that's you, then, of course, that means you're going to need to be more intentional at times to turn that bridle towards correction. And, of course, to pray for the courage to speak up when you need to. But there, for, the, for the rest of you, for, the, for, for others of you, you know that you've got no problem correcting people. Like, I mean, you know, criticism and, and, and pointing out, you know, people's problems, uh, especially, you know, pointing out your kids' problems or, or your, your, your spouse's problems, that comes natural to you. So what you're going to need to do is then, then to turn that bridle in the opposite direction to speak more words of encouragement or simply, simply to hold back your tongue altogether. Either way, pure religion is going to result in controlled and constructive speech. Otherwise, it's worthless. All right, second, when pure religion takes root among us corporately, what you're going to see is a compelling witness. The holiness that sets the church apart from the world can, at the same time, reveal a compelling witness that gets the world's attention. My point here is that our concern for holiness is not just a personal concern. It should be motivated, really, by a concern for the world. We want to be personally holy because of our concern for the lost world around us. As James said, we're not seeking friendship with the world but we are seeking to change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's our common assumption that our gospel proclamation as the church is going to take the form of speaking truth. And so what I think we tend to overlook is how the gospel is proclaimed not just through the church's truth, 
but through its truth, goodness, and beauty. There are, there's more than one way to proclaim the gospel. Truth, goodness, and beauty. So that means we know the preached word. When you, when you teach God's word, you preach God's word, we know that's powerful, that's effective. But I think we tend to understate the power of our moral goodness expressed in Christian character. And we understate the staggering beauty of a Christian community that manifests gospel unity in the midst of all of our diversity. You see, when, when our seeking friends, when they hear the truth of the gospel explained, and then they encounter the goodness of our lives transformed by the gospel, and then they see the beauty of a gospel community unified together in love, well, they are confronted in three different ways with a compelling witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ our Savior. So the whole point is that, yes, we should be focusing on the, on the, the faithfulness of our teaching, but we should also be equally focused on the holiness of our lives and then on inviting people into our community to experience the beauty of the family of God. That's how we're going to bring the gospel to impact the world. Now lastly, lastly, when a pure religion has gripped the church, you're going to see beautiful displays of compassionate service. A genuine concern for the helpless, it never just stays up here in the theoretical. It always gets translated into sacrificial acts of compassion on behalf of the poor and needy. And that, my friends, is how a church adorns the gospel. Through our good works of compassionate service. I mean, just, just think of the gospel as this like big, beautiful diamond. Okay, so picture this big, beautiful diamond of the gospel. And even as a loose stone, a loose diamond just sitting right there on the counter in front of you, the gospel shines with a stunning brilliance. But imagine if we took that loose stone and we adorned it. Our good works are like that studded ring that that huge diamond is set on. Or, or our, our, our acts of compassion are like a gem-encrusted necklace upon which that huge diamond of the gospel hangs on. Our good works are clearly not as central. And they pale in comparison to the good work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Our good works are not the gospel, but they sure can adorn the gospel. And friends, that, that's the attitude that we have as we are approaching this chosen project. And of course, not just that, but also our ongoing building project. We have an eye towards blessing not just kids around the world. We want to bless and serve our community around us in our city through, in particular, this, newly, uh, this building project that involves newly expanded uh, and renovated facilities that has an aim towards blessing others as well. So let me just be clear. Sponsoring a child or making a pledge to our building project, they are not gospel works. They pale in comparison to the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples, right? I think we'd agree. But that doesn't mean that they're not important. And that doesn't mean that they can't play an important role in adorning 
our gospel work as a church. And so that's why we've organized these projects together, and that's why we're commending them before you. So let me leave you with a prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to to think about what you're doing in this world, as well as what you're doing among us in our church. And I pray, Lord, that you will move us according to your spirit and your will in a way that we can be able to adorn your gospel, that our good works can highlight even greater the brilliance and the beauty of what Christ has done in his work on the cross. We pray all this in his name. Amen.